All right, well, well, last week, Buddy spoke to you about our heritage, about having both a healthy appreciation and an honest evaluation of it. And I want to tell you, I'm very proud of our heritage. I love the church family that I get to be a part of. I, I love the fact that we're founded on some wonderful, exciting, new every morning principles that, that can breathe new life into dry bones. Now, it's true. The bride of Christ that is the churches of Christ has some flaws. We are not perfect, but I'm proud of the family of which I get to be a part, and I'm proud of the landmark family specifically that I get to be a part of as we constantly strive to become more Christ-like. Well, this week, I want to talk about something that, uh, that larger Christendom participates in that historically we in the Church of Christ have not done much with, and that's an observance of the season of Lent. Now, we in the Churches of Christ are not typically real big on annual church calendars. Uh, we, we don't normally observe much of a calendar, but most of the, many of the believers around the world organize their years around significant events in Scripture. Now, this sounds a little quirky to our ears. It's not something that we're used to. Uh, but the question I would ask is, what makes more sense, to organize our lives around what's happening in Scripture or to organize it around taxes, federal holidays, school breaks? Uh, that, that's the stuff that we organize, organize it around. Now, most of us, if we grew up in a church that celebrated Easter, that was exactly what we did. We celebrated Easter. Kind of out of the blue, we woke up in the morning and there was a bunch of chocolate. Um, there were some bunnies, maybe, maybe a live one, but probably chocolate. There were eggs. We found the eggs. And we came to church and we sang, Christ the Lord is risen today. And we had a peppy sermon. Maybe the praise team had an extra song or two plugged in there. It was the celebration. This is, this is what we know of as Easter. Easter was a celebration. Maybe if you were in a particularly liberal church, maybe we also backed it up and we celebrated Palm Sunday by cutting out construction paper palm fronds and we would wave them around. We'd sing, Hosanna, Hosanna. These are the kinds of things that we have typically done in the churches of Christ to celebrate Easter. It is the party. But for many of the world's Christians, this season that we're in, these days leading up to Easter, are actually a time of mourning, a time of repentance, in a time of fasting. I remember growing up, I would hear some of my friends who were part of other fellowships, and they would talk about what they were giving up for Lent. And, and I really had no idea what they were talking about. Sometimes they gave up chocolate. Sometimes they gave up coffee. Um, nowadays, people give up things like Facebook. But these are all just various forms of fasting in the lead-up to Easter. Now, in the same way that Advent in December is waiting with bated breath for the coming of the Christ... The season of Lent is the painful anticipation of the death of the Christ. So yes, absolutely, we are saved by Jesus' death. But here's the thing, the gospel is bad news before the gospel is good news. It's the bad news that man is a sinner and is in need of salvation, and it's the good news that that salvation is there. It's the bad news that the Christ had to endure a humiliating, painful death, and the good news that he did it. And we would do well to remember that we are able to celebrate only because of the death that Christ endured. Now, the typical kickoff to Lent is Ash Wednesday. This is a Wednesday service. That's a very special service. And so I'd never been to one before. So this year I asked my buddy David Knowles to take me with him to an Ash Wednesday service. Now, the climax of an Ash Wednesday service is when the man officiating the service takes some ashes made from burning the previous year's palm fronds and he marks your forehead with him, and he looks you in the eye, and he reminds you of something. He reminds you that you're made of this, and one day you're going to return to it. 
for me, this was, this was a very unnerving experience to look into the eyes of a fellow believer and be reminded that I'm going to die, to be reminded of my own mortality. And accompanying this service are periods of communal repentance as well as moments for private repentance. Because apart from Christ, the reminder that we're made of dust and one day we're going to return to that is a scary thing. But in Christ, we have absolutely been freed both from the death that comes from our sin and from the fear of the death that's one day going to return us to ash. So this morning, which is the last Sunday before Palm Sunday, I'd like us to take a moment to reflect on our need for forgiveness and the necessity of repentance by taking a look at a few of the moments of Jonah's life. Now, Jonah is a wonderful story of repentance and God's mercy that goes a lot deeper than just the flannel graph stories. You know, most of us grew up looking at Jonah, the big fish that swallowed him. Um, We we always had teachers that tried to correct us, remind us it was a fish, not a whale. Um, But there's a lot to this story. It's evidently a very important one because Jesus tells us this is the story that foreshadowed his death. In Matthew 12, there are some Pharisees and some teachers of the law that came up to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want a sign from you. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater even than Jonah is here. Now, obviously, there is something to this story because Jesus tells us out of all the Old Testament stories, this is the one that he pointed to to talk about his death and his resurrection. So we're going to look at this. The way we're going to look at it, we're going to consider Jonah's life, three problems or three bad decisions that he made, and three solutions that come along with those. All right, problem number one, Jonah ran from God. Problem number one, Jonah ran from God. The first few verses of the book of Jonah read, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He ran down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And if you're a person who knew geography at the time, you knew he was headed in the exact opposite direction of where God had told him to go. Now, we are, particularly here in the Western world, we are a people consumed with wanderlust. We are always wanting to go somewhere that we've never been. We're always looking for something, even if we can't quite put our finger on it. We hear it in our music. One of the most popular rock groups of all time, U2, one of their very fa- most famous songs. He details how he looked for something in a relationship. He looked for it in shallow religion, but he what? He still hasn't found what he's looking for. We also hear it in, in, in country songs. My wife hates the fact that I can actually speak about a favorite country group. She's from Northern California. She's got a real problem with that. One of my favorite country groups has a song called Restless, and they say, I'm restless, I'm sleepless, on this quest I must go. I'm out here searching for something, but what it is, I don't know. I might have to find it under my headstone. I'm restless, and I will never rest until the restless is gone. That's part of why she hates country music, is they rhyme words like headstone and gone, or gone. But it's not just, it's not just, it's just not a, it's not a thing just for today. It's been going on a long time. Hemingway is quoted as once having said, traveling will never help you to get rid of your problems. You can't run away 
from yourself. Despite that fact, we're still trying to do so. I once went on a very long walk with two good friends. We walked a portion of the Camino de Santiago, which is a, which is a trail in Western Europe. It's an ancient Christian pilgrimage. And I went with two good friends for the fellowship of walking a long road on foot and spending time with two of my friends. But along the way, we ran into a number of people who make an annual trek to walk hundreds of miles across Western Europe over the span of a couple of months. And when I asked them what they're looking for, what, what are they looking for that they haven't found yet, most of them couldn't put it into words. Most of them are not believers, but they had an inexpressible need to keep looking for something even though they weren't finding it. Now, this morning we're talking about Jonah, who's running away from God. And maybe you're sitting there thinking that you're not running from God. You're not running from God. You're in the pews on Daylight Saving Sunday. Obviously, you're not running from God. But consider these questions. Have you ever avoided praying because you already knew what God was telling you? Have you ever avoided church or some specific friends or mentors in your life? because of a sin in your life and you knew they were going to call you on it? Here's one that I did several times throughout college. Have you ever professed an earnest struggle with God and the things that you hear from Him, not because you actually had real burning questions, but because you'd already heard what He wanted you to do and you didn't want to do it? These are some ways that we find ourselves running from God. But running from God is actually running from our own inadequacy and brokenness. We know that those things are made painfully clear in the light of a perfect God, and so we run from Him. We don't want to be in His presence to reveal our weaknesses. So here's the solution. God's presence is a promise. It's not a threat. God is always with us. We can't outrun Him. Whether we are obediently on the road to Nineveh or we're disobediently fleeing in the exact opposite direction, God is always there. Psalm 139 is a beautiful song about that. My kids, my kids memorized it when we moved back from Burkina Faso. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, in my bad days, this is a threat, and it's a pretty scary one. But on my good days, this is an absolutely beautiful promise that I get to wake up and revel in, that I get to wake up and delight in. So I want to encourage you this morning. I want you to take a moment this season, maybe even this day, to consider your walk. Are you running to him? Or are you running from him? Because the thing is, he's there the whole time either way. But your attitude toward whether it feels more scary threat or beautiful promise depends on the direction that you're running. Number two, Jonah's second problem, was that he confused loving pursuit with vindictive punishment. We're going to read a little farther in the book of Jonah now. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and shook him. He said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we won't perish. 
The sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble on us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because Jonah had already told them. He knew it. So then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right, I want us to do a little quiz here. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I want you to tell me whether you think Jonah felt pursued by a loving God or punished by a vindictive God. How do you think Jonah felt when he woke up to a raging sea and a panicked captain? Pursued or punished? Punished. Very good. Nudge your neighbor. Wake him up. Number two, how do you think Jonah felt when the lot felt on him as having caused that storm? Do you think he felt pursued by a loving God or punished? I think he felt punished. How do you think Jonah felt as those leaping waves crashed over his head and he went under the water? Pursued or punished? He felt punished. Now we're on the outside And we're looking in. And we can see that the same God who created those waves that crashed over Jonah's head also created the fish to keep him safe. We can see that in the storm was Jonah's salvation. God was working to save Jonah for Jonah's own good and also because God had prepared great things for Jonah to do. We can see that. But my guess is that Jonah had a pretty hard time seeing it from inside that dark fish belly. What felt like the greatest rejection of Jonah's entire life was actually one of the strongest embraces of a loving God that he'd ever had, a loving God who still wanted to be in relationship with him. So what's the solution? The solution is that God is always pursuing us. God is always pursuing us. It's just that sometimes it sure feels like he's punishing us. His pursuit doesn't always look or feel the way that we think it should. I see this in my own life. I see it in the gentle reminders toward holiness that I receive from watching my bride. I see it in the direct intervention of a very good, very brave friend who sees sin in my life and calls me on it. Or how about this one? I hear my own ungodly vocabulary that I use getting repeated from the mouths of my children. These are all signs of God's nonstop pursuit of me. I'm one of his beloved sons that, from my perspective, feels like he's getting punished when it's actually God running hard after me because he loves me. So I want you to keep in mind two things. First of all, God doesn't punish us. Jesus already took that punishment on himself. Isaiah 53 tells us that the punishment that brought us peace was already laid upon him, the suffering servant, the Christ. Secondly, when we're pursued, when we're disciplined, it's because God loves us. Proverbs 3 tells us that discipline from our Father is a sign of love. In the same way that I discipline my children to help them learn because I love them, God disciplines us because he loves us. And he wants what's best for us, and he wants what's best for the kingdom. 
Number three, Jonah's third problem is that Jonah got angry because God didn't stay that way. Jonah got angry because God didn't stay that way. The biggest miracle in the whole Jonah story is not that fish thing. That fish thing's pretty cool. The biggest miracle in the whole story is that the people of Nineveh actually repented. That's the real miracle. 3.5 says, The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. From king to the lowest servant, every one of them repented. And from the book of Jonah, we don't see them wavering. They repented. Now, in Jonah's side of things, was there much rejoicing at having become one of the very few prophets that God ever sent that actually got his job done? Well, 3.10 tells us, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah got angry because God was too kind to Nineveh and not kind enough to him. And both of those seemed unfair to him. Jonah seemed to think that his relationship with God was a partnership. And when God frustrated him and started down the wrong path, Jonah wound up taking the role of the senior partner in the relationship, and he even got on to God in 4.9. Have you ever thought, like Jonah, that God owed you an explanation? Well, the whole book of Jonah asks whether or not we're right to get so angry with God. God, by showing compassion to Nineveh, showed Jonah that he was blind to his own desperate need of salvation. The whole point of Jonah, and solution number three to this third problem, is that we all need saving. Every one of us needs saving. The only one who can do this saving work is God. And every single time that he does it, whether it's for a rebellious city or what was a pretty decent, reluctant prophet, it is always a miraculous work of mercy and grace. Romans 5 tells us, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Praise God that he didn't stay angry. But that instead, he sent his son so that we can all be saved through his death and through his life. Here as we conclude, just as God used his compassion toward Nineveh to expose Jonah's self-righteousness and sin, maybe God can use his compassion towards Jonah to help us see our own self-righteousness and our own sin. Consider, are you running from God? Well, if you are, then stop. Turn around and realize the blessing of acknowledging a God that's been running after you the whole time and was there with you the whole time. Are you confusing God's pursuit of you in love with the punishment of a vindictive God? Well, then recognize what this loving God is trying to do both in and through you. Or maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you're upset with Him. And I want to ask you to please open your eyes to the compassion that God shows you every day. 
You might not get swallowed by a fish and spat out on dry land, which is was probably okay. But you're going to experience the greater miracle. The greater miracle is forgiveness extended to sinners who need it. So I ask you, don't let this season of Lent, this time of waiting on the impending death of the Savior, pass you by without examining yourself. Prepare yourself so that when, sun, when that Sunday finally gets here in two weeks, you can enjoy the eggs and you can enjoy the bunnies and you can enjoy the songs fully aware of what God has done and is doing both in and for you. So this morning, if you've decided you need to stop running from God, or if you've decided that you need to start recognizing a loving pursuit of you, or if you need to stop being angry with God, then you can come forward and have us pray for you as we stand and sing.